Well, a couple weeks ago, I uh, took my son for his annual haircut. Uh, yes, moms, you heard that right. He gets a haircut once a year. And it's the same rhythm that we basically do. We let him grow his hair out all year long. And then right before the start of preschool, this year is kindergarten, he gets his haircut. So I took him to the barber and I said, all right, Jude, uh, you got three options. And I call them the three M's. You want a man bun, a mullet, or a mohawk? And then he just says, how about a regular haircut? And I was like, that's so boring. And then he's like, but you have a regular one. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll get a mullet with you sometime soon. So he's getting his haircut, though. We're at this barber, and I look over on the corner, and there's this chalkboard with 16 tallies on it. And above it, it just says mullet counter. And I was like, what, is, what does this mean? So I asked, I said, guys, what's up with the chalkboard over here? And they say, they're like, yeah, like the mullet is kind of back. And uh, so we, we just keep track of how many mullet haircuts we've given. And I was like, 16 mullets this year? That's incredible. And they're like, oh, no, no, that's just this month alone. Like, did you guys know that the mullet is back? Okay, so much so that there is actually a national competition right now to discover the kid with the best mullet in America. You think I'm making this up? I'm not. I have pictures to prove it. It's an actual thing. You can go online and vote. And so here's a couple examples of these kids going for best mullet. So here we have Jameson. You know, a little younger crew, but uh, he's got the shades a little too big for his face. But he's definitely got the party going on on the back for sure. Then we got Emmett just looks like a, 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 just like a dog. You know what I mean? Like he's just got the bowl cut going on up front. He's got, there's something with these mullets and these glasses. And then there's an, another Emmett and this kid is my favorite. Like he just looks like that kid who walks up to Little League and you're like, this kid hits dingers. I can just tell. Like he's got some game. Like he has just got the swag and everything going about it. When you think about mullets, honestly, one of the first things that comes to my mind is like, that's just like a very American thing. Like, I don't know if I've ever, I've never really been to foreign countries, but like, you never really see mullets. And so between mullets and fireworks, I think there's only one thing that's more American, and that is freedom. And uh, I want to talk about freedom today, but not so much from a political vein or an Americanized version, but freedom as something that all people everywhere are experiencing, try to experience, would like to experience, and the questions that come with freedom from a human dignity standpoint. That there is a respect and responsibility that comes along with it. So much so that Bob Dylan, the great theologian, said this about freedom. He had these words to say when it came to the idea of freedom. That I think of a hero as someone who understands the degree of responsibility that comes with this freedom. If I were to take like a straw poll this morning and just ask us here... Hey, who do you think deserves freedom in life? Not even from an American standpoint, but as human, who deserves freedom? I think everyone would be hard-pressed to not answer by saying, well, well, everyone. In some form or fashion, everyone deserves freedom. But I don't think the question that I want to wrestle with today is not who deserves freedom. Instead, the question is, what do we do with it? If we have freedom, what should freedom be used for? Because here's the thing. The Bible talks about freedom a lot. Again, this isn't a political freedom, so to speak, but it's called freedom in Christ. It's this baseline piece of our theology and doctrine that says you have been welcomed into the family of God. You are now free to live a life in that kingdom and in that family. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15 this morning as we study in this, continue in this series through the book of Acts. We've been going chapter by chapter, week by week. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then
then the book of Acts, the first five books of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, the guy who wrote it, his name was Luke, so he came up with a super creative name, and then he decided to write the book of Acts as a way to say, this is what happened as a response to the life, death, resurrection, and ministry of Jesus. If you've missed any messages throughout this series, you can go check them on our website or app. If you're a note taker, wherever you pick up communion, you can grab one of those, and we still have some of our Acts study booklets uh, for you to take notes and follow along with us as well. Here's the thing. When we turn to Acts chapter 15, we're going to see this idea of freedom in Christ being threatened because there's a group of people who are essentially going to put a fence in front of the gospel. That we know what Jesus has said, we know what the gospel is, that any person, regardless of where they're from, how they vote, what they look like, they are welcomed to the family of God because of the work of Jesus. But there's going to be a group of people that we're going to see, they put a fence in front of that freedom in Christ. And let's find out what that is as we start this morning. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1 says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So there it is. There is the fence that is being placed in front of the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. There's some ways they're, they're throwing salt in the wound in this situation at this point. And this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and apostles and elders to whom they had reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So there's a group of Pharisees who will go on to be referred to as the Judaizers who are putting up this fence. And you notice how the fence has already grown. At first, in verse 1, it was, you must be circumcised, you must get over this fence in order to belong to the family of God. And Paul and Barnabas are like, oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's not how it is. There's either slave nor free, male nor female. Everyone belongs to the family of God because it is by the grace of Jesus Christ. And then they respond again saying, unless you've been circumcised and you follow the law of Moses, meaning 630 plus rules, laws of obedience found in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. And so they are creating this system, this fence to say that if you want in with Christ, you kind of got to do these things first. And Paul and Barnabas go, that's not the way it is. That's not how our Savior designed it to be. And what ensues is a form of conflict resolution in which they do not cancel one another. They do not write hateful Facebook posts about one another, but they begin to say, this is a problem that we need to address. Picking up in verse six, uh, six, it continues. It says, so the apostles and elders met to consider this question. Do you actually have to be circumcised to be saved? After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, 
for he purified their hearts by faith. Peter stands up and he makes this stance. He says, we all know it to be true. That the marker, the distinction of someone in their faith is not whether or not they had been circumcised. He says, the only marker distinction of a follower of Jesus is the spirit of the living God living in them that was delivered to them through faith. You see, in no way, shape, or form was circumcision ever supposed to be able to save someone. But it was a symbol, it was a gesture of an inward change in our hearts, simplified through an act. Now, here's the thing. We don't cut our teeth around the idea of circumcision, right? Like, when was the last time you actually had a conversation, if at all, about circumcision? My guess is this isn't a common thing around your dinner tables or anything like that. Is that, is that safe to say? And yet here it is, it's coming into their life and into their faith. But we can turn back to the Old Testament and see that circumcision itself was always supposed to be an outward sign of an inward change, that it was to symbolize cutting off the flesh, this way of life, to live with God. If we return to the book of Deuteronomy, we can see how circumcision was described as an act of purifying our hearts. This is what Deuteronomy says twice about circumcision. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Were the Israelites called to be obedient to God through circumcision? Yes, they were. Was the act of circumcision ever intended to save you from your sin? Absolutely not. It was an act that was always accompanied by faith. Very similar to how perhaps we we use and speak about baptism. Is that baptism, just the the going and the being uh, dunked or or, or water covering you has no bounds in your spiritual life unless faith and repentance first exists. Let me just give you an example. Let's just say you wanted to take that super seriously. That anyone who has been completely covered by water and someone shouts something like, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how people got saved. And so then you and a couple of your buddies decide to fill up uh, five-gallon buckets of water and you got in the back of a pickup truck and then you drove around downtown areas and you would ask people like, excuse me, sir, have you been baptized and have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if they say no, then you, whoosh, you dump the bucket of water on them and say, I baptize you in the name of the Lord and then you take off. Let's just say you had a pastor who did something like that in his teenage years and wanted to come clean as a 30-year-old. What? That doesn't actually do anything, right? If the heart isn't there, if the faith isn't there, if the repentance isn't there, the act itself carries no weight. Were they called to be circumcised prior to Jesus? Yes, because it symbolized that their hearts had been transformed and they want to follow God. Do we baptize today because water saves you? No. Do we baptize today because we believe it is an expression of that faith? Perhaps we might even say that very first step of salvation, absolutely we do. So how does then one receive freedom in Christ? They're probably asking that question. If the old snippety snip doesn't do it, how, how, how do we get it? How do we get this freedom from Christ? You're telling me there's a fence. Those guys are saying that fence doesn't exist. So how do I get it? 
They answer this question in verse uh, 10 and 11 of chapter 15. It says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on their necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they were. It's right there, by grace, through faith. No asterisks. No hurdle, no fence. But what seemed like was kind of happening was this circumcision was being tacked on afterwards. It's like they would have these conversations. Oh, tell me about, oh, I heard that you have expressed new faith and salvation. That's amazing. What's God doing in your life? And everybody go, cool. Has anyone told you, though, about the circumcision piece? Well, that wasn't in the fine print when, when, when Paul told me about that. Well, yeah, yeah, you, you probably need to get that taken care of. And again, that's probably not something a lot of us hear or share or even think. But if we're honest, there are sometimes fences that we put up, whether we intend to or not, whether we realize it or not, of whether or not someone can actually belong into the freedom of Christ. Well, it's by grace, through faith, only what Jesus has done. But I don't know, could you actually be a Christian and vote Democrat? Jesus has paid it all, all to him I owe, but could you actually consider yourself a disciple and have voted Republican last time? We all fall short, we're saved by the work of Jesus Christ, nothing else, but if you struggle with homosexuality, if you struggle with lust, if you struggle with greed, if you struggle with immorality, well, you kind of got to fix that first and then you can kind of belong. Well, we know that it's purely and only what Jesus has done, but you're not a real Christian unless you've spoken in tongues like I have. You're not a real Christian unless your, your, your end times theology has Tim LaHaye attached to it with Nicolas Cage and Kurt Cameron. I think we begin to see the danger of putting fences around the gospel of who can belong of who can be saved, of who can experience the freedom of Jesus Christ when Jesus himself hasn't even put a fence up. That's why Paul is vehement in in Ephesians chapter 2. He puts it so plainly and bluntly for us. He says these words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Let's read it. I can't find it. It's here. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. He continues in verse 9. Not by works so that no one can boast. We cannot put fences where Jesus himself has not. And Jesus says there is only one fence between you and the freedom that I provide. And that fence has nothing to do with who you are. That fence has nothing to do with what you've done. That fence has nothing to do with how you voted, where you live, what type of car you drive, or how much money you make. And it's a fence that we all share. And that fence is called sin. That the only fence between us and freedom in Christ is our sin that we are born with. It's a fence that we build higher and bigger each and every day because we are sinful people. Because we make mistakes, because we blunder, because we stumble and fall. And Jesus has said, there is only one fence between me and my freedom, and that's sin. And don't worry, I have taken care of that fence. 
I have lived, I have died, I rose again. I have tore down that fence so that anyone who believes shall not perish but have eternal life. Come into my family, come into my freedom because here you will experience eternal life, not just then and there, but here and now. And so then they respond back in Acts chapter 15. What do we do with this? Because this problem is, we don't want this idea of offense getting out there. And so they said, let's, let's come up with a plan. Let's write a letter and let's have it respond and deliver to people. So if you skip to verse 19 of chapter 15, this is how they respond. It says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Spoiler alert, majority of you are Gentiles. Unless you are ethnically Jewish, you are considered a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, uh, called Bersabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. Then verse 29, this is the end of the letter that they wrote. It says, so you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid such things. And then this is a great way to end the letter. Farewell. Some of you right now, something is going off in your brain. Eric, hold up. 30 seconds ago, you said there's no fence. You said that we experience the freedom in Christ based on just uh, faith and grace. Why then are they saying, also, don't eat those foods. Don't do those things. Avoid sexual immorality. Well, which is it? Perhaps the question is, what's the difference between you don't have to do anything to get in versus, as they say at the end of the letter, you would do well to avoid these things? Perhaps I can put it this way. What's the difference between a fence and a guardrail? If you've ever uh, experienced some of the the great national parks of our great country, um, Yosemite, which is in California, the great redwoods, which are in California, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, one, the west side of the Rocky Mountains, which is in California, part of the, you know, all the good national parks in California, uh, or all, any national park for that matter. If you've gone to the Smoky Mountains, if you've gone to Colorado, if you've gone to the, the Appalachian Trail, and you ever go on one of those roads where it's a two-way traffic, two cars, each going opposite ways, And it's like, I'm pretty sure only a car and a quarter can fit on that road. And you're going up those paths and you're getting to that side and sometimes there's a guardrail and sometimes there's not. You ever been in one of those situations? And then if you're in the the passenger side, you're looking over and you're like, this is how it ends. This is just, this is how my wife's going to do me in. She's just going to kick me off the side. I don't know, he didn't have a seatbelt on, he just fell off. Uh, See ya! Um, sometimes there's guardrails and sometimes there's not. What's the difference between a fence and a guardrail, though? You see, every national park you go to, there's going to be a fence or a gate at the front that says, this is when we're open, this is when you're allowed to come in. We invite you as long as it's open. But if it's not, and you come in, we call the cops. 
We're going to arrest you. You're trespassing. You don't belong here. A guardrail says people can freely come up and down this road as much as they want, and we have placed these here so that you can be safe, so that you can drive freely, and if for whatever reason you begin to veer, you are protected, but not just you, everyone else. You see, the difference between a fence and a guardrail is simply the intent of why it is put up. A fence says you cannot come in unless you have been invited. You cannot come in unless you have the RSVP. You cannot come in unless the person on the inside has opened it for you. A guardrail says someone had the forethought to do something to keep you safe. Someone had the forethought to do something to keep others safe. What's the difference between a fence and a guardrail? It's simply the heart between the two. The Judaizers wanted to put up a fence of circumcision. You cannot get in unless. But the elders and the apostles of this first church said, we will put up guardrails of obedience for you to enjoy this life on the road to salvation. Think about this list again. Because God is after our hearts. He has our best interests in mind. He says, don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols, a.k.a. don't bring pagan worship into your life, into my church. He says, keep away from blood. Did you guys know that blood causes disease? It does. That's why we have Band-Aids for ouchies and boo-boos. We don't want that stuff spreading around. Meat from strangled animals, rigor mortis, gross. Sexual immorality. Keep your hearts pure. Here's the thing. Is that our culture, though, likes to see guardrails as fences. Does it not? Especially when it comes to following Jesus. Our culture likes to say, no, 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 those guardrails take away my freedom. How I want to live life, the things that I want to do. Culture says the heart just wants what the heart wants. Follow your heart, you do you, boo, just do it, speak your truth, be true to yourself. And as soon as guardrails start to come up from the kingdom and the word of God, we begin to say, hold up, where's my freedom going? It's being taken away from me. And therein lies one of the hardest things that we have to do as disciples of Jesus is that if we view God's way of life as derivative or less than, if we view God as a cosmic killjoy, if we think God is just trying to be mean and take us out, then any time we reach a guardrail, we're going to see it as a fence. But instead, we remind ourselves to say that God is God. God is good. God is love. God is sovereign. God is full of grace, and he most certainly has our hearts and best interests in mind. We would do well to not run over those guardrails. But our culture does not like that. Their culture back then did not like that. We see guardrails as fences when in reality, it's actually harmful for freedom. Think of it this way. A form of negative freedom, exemplified in the poetic masterpiece from the words of a Scandinavian intellect, Prince Elsa. She describes freedom like this. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. 
There's a negative side to freedom, is there not? Perhaps you've been the victim of that negative side of freedom. Perhaps you have used freedom negatively for your own benefits. But if we view freedom for self, if we view freedom as the goal for ourself, in a selfish way, it might sound something like this. That the goal of freedom is to give me the power to do what I want, when I want, however I want, to whomever I want, without consideration of my actions. And you can apply that to so many different things. You can apply that to your finances. You can apply that to sex. You can apply that to power. You can apply that wherever you want. This idea that freedom is given to me to do whatever I want. I could care less about how it impacts others because by golly, that's what I am earned or deserve or am given. And the thing is, whether you are a Christian or not, you would take that definition of freedom and say, yeah, I don't think that's very good. I I don't know if anyone says, yep, that's the kind of freedom that I want. That's the type of freedom I want to teach my kids and want to see exemplified wherever I go. Because Christian or not, you realize, and we know and we've seen, and history tells us that freedom used wrongly causes pain towards other people, hurt and oppressions. So if freedom is not to be for self, what if freedom is for service. Instead of freedom freedom being selfish, what if freedom is to be viewed selflessly? It might sound something like this. That freedom is the power to serve and sacrifice in my choice for the betterment of others. And this way is is the way of Jesus, not just the way of of the modern philanthropist. It's the way Jesus taught things like blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He who wants to be first in my kingdom must be last. Consider yourself in chains for my ministry. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because freedom is best exemplified in serving others. So I want to close with four thoughts. If you're a note taker, you can follow along and fill these in with us this morning. What should we do then? with our freedom in Christ? What should we do with this new life and this new eternity that Jesus has given to us? Number one is remember the freedom to belong in the family of God was not free. This is no different than the freedoms and liberties we experience in this country that there's typically someone or someone else who paid the price for us so that we can experience freedom. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to remind people of the cost of the freedom that we had in Christ. He says this, he says, Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I passed on to you, is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus paid the price. And just because it's free to belong to the family of God, it doesn't mean it didn't cost anyone anything. Because it cost one man everything so that you don't have to be, do, or become before you belong in the family of God. 
One of my favorite illustrations to draw out this idea is it's like getting an allowance. You were born into a family, and did you know it wasn't your choice? Someone else and someone else's had an idea, and they did some things, and then nine months later, you were born, and you were welcomed to a family. And then sometimes your family decides to give you something purely from something that you do by belonging. It's called an allowance. That mom or dad earns a living hard wage, and they give you some with the hope that you would steward it well. Because they love you. Not because you did anything to earn it, not because you, you did something to belong to that family, but purely because you are a son or a daughter. There is a gift given to you to build you up. It's the same thing with our inheritance in the kingdom of God. Number two is that we are freed from the penalty of sin and we are being freed from the bondage of our sin. That sometimes we place the emphasis on that moment of salvation. Do you know the day you were saved? Do you remember the time, the moment? Do you remember the, the, the exact hour and minute? Do you remember who was talking and all that type of stuff? Sometimes we, we place a heavy emphasis and sometimes we know that. Other times we don't. And that's okay. But there's a second emphasis in our spiritual life. It's not just are you saved, but what are you doing with the life now that you are? It's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And then he finishes up with by no means. Just because we know our eternity doesn't mean we have this life figured out. If you claim to be a Christian and disciple of Jesus but think you don't have problems, I'm sorry, you're, you're lying to yourself. In fact, one of the most Christian things we should be able to do in the community of faith is to say, I don't have it all figured out. I know for a fact I don't, and I know for a fact you don't, so let's just stop pretending like we're all perfect and got it all peachy keen. The beauty of the kingdom of God is to say, we're not perfect, but someone else was on our behalf. But we are being freed from that bondage here and now as we live this life, as we strive to live out of the spirit, not our flesh. Number three is like it, but it's a little different. It says this, is that we are free to live like Christ, but not however we want. I spent almost a decade in student ministry before um, hanging out with you guys. So uh, jury's out. You guys, we don't have root beer floats enough in here to make it worth it sometimes, but it's okay. And one of the questions I would functionally get uh, is always, Eric, where's the line? How much can I get away with and it still not be sin? Or how much can I do and God still love me? Well, Eric, how far can I go with my boyfriend or girlfriend and it not be sex? Eric, technically, if I smoke some weed, but I didn't get high, is that bad? Well, Eric, because it's by grace, I can do whatever I want and God's still going to love me. So why don't I just do whatever I want and then just, you know, know that I said the prayer and then I go on with my life. And the answer to that question is always, would you want somebody to respond with what they've given to you with that type of mentality? The answer is, of course not. The Apostle Paul says this, almost a way to answer that idea. What do we do with this freedom? He says this. Verse 13, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, we are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So I will say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. If you ever find yourself asking that question or perhaps one of your kids, well, if it's by grace, can I just do whatever I want? Remember these three things as a follow-up. Number one, all must ask, what should I do to be saved? That is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, the question then should be, well, what should I do because I'm saved? But here's number three. No one should ever find themselves asking, what can I do and still be saved? Because we're not freed to live however we want. We are freed to live like Jesus. Number four, and here's where we'll wrap it up, is that once we've found freedom in Christ, we help others strengthen and find theirs. That's why we say the mission of our church is helping each other follow Jesus. Because we want to be a church that helps strengthen our freedom in Christ. So I'll close with this illustration this morning because I understand this dichotomy. How do we not be legalistic? How do we be full of love and grace and compassion but also not be flippant about sin? How do we not be legalistic while at the same time too taking seriously the call to follow Jesus in our life? And here's a great story that, that, that uh, Samuel, our, our, our spiritual formation pastor, shared with us in our teaching team from a book he read. He said there was a man who went on a trip to Australia and he went and he was taking in the whole countryside, how beautiful it was. And he got to this farm and he noticed something peculiar. He noticed all of the cattle were just kind of grazing all about, but he noticed one thing missing. And the thing that was missing was fences. And so the man goes up to the farmer and he says, you've got some great land. You've got some nice looking cattle. I just got to know how, how do you keep them safe? How do you keep them protected? How do you keep them from, uh, from just dying or going off? You have no fences to keep them in. And the farmer responded was, we dig wells. He says, what do you mean? He says, we dig wells deep in our care by our farmers, by our houses. We don't put up fences We dig wells because what the cows begin to learn is that if they want to survive, they come freely to this well to drink water. And they can go off as far as they want. They can go off as little as they want. They can graze and go over on that hillside. This is good grass, but they always come back because they know where the water is. Since we dig wells, we don't build fences. And the question for us is, will we be a church? Will you be a disciple who digs a well on the living water of Jesus Christ and not build fences? Here's what I know, though, is that we will strive to be that church. We will strive to dig deep wells into the goodness, into the passions and the mercy of Jesus Christ. We will avoid putting up fences around those wells and we will know that people will come from far off. People will come from close by. People who will come and they will see it's their first time at the well. People who used to be at the well, they ventured off and they've made their way back. The beautiful thing about Jesus is Jesus says, there's no fence in my family, but I am your living water. If you want to experience life, 
you need to know where to find it. And I bet a lot of us could share stories of, of how we have wandered off searching for water elsewhere. We could share stories, we could share seasons, we could share so many things in which, man, we have tried, I've tried, I tried to find life there, I've tried to find water over here, I tried to find water with him, she, I thought she was gonna be my water, but it's not there, I I had this bank account over here, but it kept running dry, here I am, and we find ourselves in this moment in which we say, I'm so thirsty. And Jesus says, if you drink from my water, you'll never thirst again. I am the well that will never run dry. Will you be a church? Will you be part of a church? Will you be a disciple? Will you be a husband, a father, a neighbor that digs deep, deep wells into the goodness of God and to never build fences where Jesus has not? It's messy. It's not easy but it most certainly is the way of our good shepherd. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship Jesus this morning? Lord, we come before you humbled, hopefully in some capacity for the ways in which you have a not put up any fences between us and you. You have tore down those fences and by grace through faith we find new life. You've given us yourself, your living waters. As, as the prophet Isaiah said, chapter 55, come those who are thirsty, come and drink. So Lord, I ask us this morning to be filled with you whether we feel tired, weak, uneasy, whether we feel beat down, abandoned, alone, whether we're hurt, confused, Lord, may we know that it's your living water that gives us life. May we drink from your well this morning and may we keep fences away from your gospel and your goodness. It's your name that we pray. Amen.